every lap in under a minute. Every move made to matter. Every decision impacting the outcome of the race. Supercars in Perth. Every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Ticketek. Supercars. Unforgettable. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. Hey everyone, Aaron Noonan here. Welcome again to the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Repco. My guest on this pod, in fact, it's the first of a two-part pod, is Adrian Burgess. These days, he's the head of motorsport at the Repco Supercars Championship. But on our pod, we like to delve into the past. So we've split our chat across two weeks. This is part one. And we talk about his amazing career in the sport. Mainly in part one, we talk about his time in Formula One, about where he came from, how he got into motor racing, his years in the 90s working in Formula One with McLaren, and the whirlwind life of being a mechanic on a test team. He talks about a very funny prank that the McLaren team played one day on the late, great Ayrton Senna, the Chrysler V12 Formula One engine that, well, may have raced. It didn't quite race with the McLaren, but it most certainly tested. Uh, his time being the race mechanic for Mika Hakkinen, of course, that terrible crash in Adelaide in 1995 where Mika was lucky to escape with his life and then return a couple of years later to become the Formula One world champion. Adrian was there right through it all as the mechanic for Mika. He's got some great stories of his time in the UK, in the junior categories and in Formula One. So here we go. Buckle up. Time to start part one of Adrian Burgess on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Repco. Well, uh, I am supposed to be sitting with you, Adrian Burgess, potentially drinking a quite red or two as we reminisce about your motorsport career. Unfortunately, I'm sitting on Zoom. You're sitting on Zoom. I'm not with a red wine. You are with a red wine. I think you win this already, mate. I have to admit, um, it's been crazy busy at the moment. And the reason I'm 10 minutes late for this podcast is I did have to go and get a bottle of wine (laughs) just to help me get over the day's activities. Oh, I so, thought you were going to. I thought you were going to say it was to so you could deal with me, but um, uh, noons you're uh, easy. Oh, I try. I, I try to keep it simple. Try to keep it simple. Um, I wanted to start, mate. We call you commonly ATB. What does the T stand for? I've never asked you this. It's nothing funny or flash or anything. This has started in my uh, McLaren days. Everybody had nicknames in McLaren days, and uh, it's just my middle name. My middle name's Thomas, so I'm just Adrian Thomas Burgess. It's nothing. Uh, there were a few variations that the boys gave me from there, but that one just stuck. It just rolls off the tongue. And, yeah, so boring, straightforward, ATV. Oh, okay, there's no exclusive insight there that nah. we can um, re- really write a headline out you, of already. You're not going to become rich off that one. No, nah, no. Nah, I've got some more. I've got some more. Don't worry. <laughs> we'll, we'll see how we go. Um, there's so much to talk about. I really want to focus on this chat about not just your supercar stuff, but Formula One and, and clearly your involvement with McLaren and uh, and your, your time in the junior categories. But how did you get into motor racing? I guess we should go back to the start. Am I right in remembering you left home when you were like 15 to go and join a race team? It was like running away to go and join the circus. 
it felt like that, and I um, copped the wrath of my mother for doing it. But uh, um, look, I mean, I don't know. Our family's always been in it a little bit. My brothers have always been big race fans and motorbike riders and things. And I think one of the earliest memories for myself was sadly my uncle. My uncle used to have a sprint car. Um, and I would have been, I don't know, three or four years old and I'd go and sit in the thing and then he'd go and fire it up and it would scare me, scare me shitless. But, um, and I used to, we used to live uh, not far from Brands Hatch, uh, where I was, where I grew up in my early days. So we used to go down there every now and again. So I've, I've sort of always been around it. And when we were about six or seven, we moved to a place called Derby and Donington Park was only probably eight or nine miles from where I lived. Um, and I ended up just, going out there on my push bike um, at weekends and marshalling and, and just getting involved in the sport from grassroots level. I sort of, I also had a paper round, you know, like every sort of 10, 11, 12 year old kid does. And there was this particular house that used to have autosport and you'll be, uh, you know, you'll be fully aware of the magazine autosport. And I used to sit there on this guy's wall at the end of the road and, and flick through it and uh, just was in awe of Formula One in those days, you know, PK and Prost and Rene Arnu and, and all that stuff. And then I'd watch Grand Prix and, you know, with old Murray uh, Walker, the legend of his commentary, I just I just sort of got into it more and more and more. And, and you know, I just, you know, I was that, that sort of crazy kid who wanted to be a racing driver and wanted to go karting and all these things. And I sort of realised that, you know, I didn't realise our family weren't in a position to do that. We weren't well off or... Uh, or anything like that. So I ended up just uh, actually out the back of Autosport one week, um, just seeing an advertisement for a team called Rich and Dut- Dutton Racing. And I'm um, 15 years old, jumped on the train, went over there for an interview. And I, it was basically the dog's body. You know, you're like a number two mechanic on the Formula Ford 2000 team. And they got they gave me the job and gave me a, an apartment or a flat to live in. Um, so I left home, went went back home, told my mum I was moving out at 15 years old. And <laughs> she cracked it, as, as she probably rightly should have. And uh, But that was the start for me. I, I just got in at the grassroots level and I loved it. I was just, you know, when, once I was there, I just knew it was what I wanted to do. And and I saw myself, you know, wanting to be involved in this for the rest of my life. It was, uh, it was great. And you read a million autosports and you never paid for one of them. Yeah, exactly. How yeah. good. Well done. Yeah. It's like a mobile library that you had going there for a, it was. It was, a little uh, bit of a time. Everyone used to complain that on the Thursday, because I'm sure, I think it was Thursdays that that got delivered, that they were a little bit slow in receiving their paper that day because <laughs> I, I sat there reading Autosport. <laughs> so, but uh, that's pr- sort of really where it started. It, it served a very good purpose because you've you've gone on to do all sorts of cool stuff on the journey. Uh, so as a 15-year-old, oh, did you fib? Did, did you tell them how old you were? Surely they well, were, not, I, were no, they worried about that? No, not really. And I just wanted a good, young, uh, enthusiastic kid as sort of, you know, I, I appreciate it now, but, you know, running teams most of my life, trying to get the youngsters into the sport. If you've got someone with the right attitude, it's it's worth, you know, they're worth getting hold of and uh, nurturing. And, you know, I was, I was just keen as, and everything was legal and above board. You know, you're, you're allowed to finish school. In, in England, you finish at 16, um, which is the O-levels, and then you either stay on, do another two years for your A-levels. But being a July baby, I was one of the youngest always for my year group. So I'd finished all my exams and and all that stuff, but I was still technically 15. And when I took the job and uh, moved out and, yeah, just went racing, I think from 
middle of June when I started to December, we raced every weekend, bar about two or three weekends. It was for me, it was awesome. I was traveling around in the truck and working on race cars, and I, you know, it, it was straight away. I thought, God, this is the this is the job. Um, loved it. It was awesome. And at that stage, you just thrilled to be in it. Didn't have the grand aspirations to to run a team or to engineer. It was just, I want to be in this. Got to be around it. Whatever, I'll do whatever. Yeah, got to be in it. I mean, as normal, you're a kid. You aspire to to grow and develop. And so straight away, you're you're thinking, okay, Formula Three. Yeah, you know, this was Formula Four two thousand. We had a Formula Three team, but um, you know, I, I, they were a good team. It was fun. But straight away, you're looking you know, how to get to where you wanted to get to. And already, you know, I've been watching Formula One on TV and we actually, in 85, which was the year I started, we were uh, we were doing European championships. So we were going to Germany, Italy, France every weekend and all this stuff. And a lot of the time we were supporting the Formula One races. So, you know, even more for me, I was straight away, I'd got my job in Formula Four 2000 and we were one of the support races in for F1 weekend. So I could... I got myself in the door and then all of a sudden I could nearly touch it, see it and feel it. So straight away, I knew as a 15, 16 year old, I wanted to get to Formula One. So then for me, it was like, okay, what's the best route? How do I do it? And then I'd, I'd worked my way through a couple of teams and, you know, you are you know where you want to be. And you, I wanted to get myself in the best Formula Three team because that was how I saw myself getting my chance in Formula One. And, that, and that's exactly sort of how it turned out. I'd, you know, I went through a couple of little small teams to get myself into the best Formula 3 team. And then in 89, you know, I ended up at Bowman, which has come to be Carlin as we know it now. And for anyone who knows they're racing in Europe and even in America, they're one of the biggest and best teams outside of Formula 1. Um, so, you know, at 19, I found myself working at Bowman uh, with Brabs. Well, I wasn't on Brabs's car. I was on Philippe Adams's car and but we, we were successful everywhere. We ran an AMB class, and I think we were first, fifth, and sixth in the championship, and five of our six drivers all won races. It was just a great, a really, really great grounding and, and working with people like Bruce Carey. You know, I hope some of your listeners yeah, will, will remember his name. I mean, he, he was there with Ron Toronak and those guys. Bruce was an absolute legend, and, and you learned very, very early on that – you know, the reason why you do it the right way and, and, and not taking the shortcut and trying to, um, trying to save money here or there. He, he was just a, a legend. You know, yeah. I, know, I don't know how much you know about Bruce, but yeah, he was a star. Hmm. Uh, you talked about getting to the best Formula Three team. And at the time that was Paul Stewart racing, the team that Jackie yeah. and Paul had set up and had some of the biggest, you know, some amazing names go through that place. Who was there when, when you were there? Yeah, so I mean, yeah, so we were at Bowman in '89 and we won the championship. And then my mum, and that was eight, yeah. Unfortunately, my mum was uh, suffering with cancer at that time. She'd been fighting it for 10 years. And at, at the end of that year, um, she actually passed away. And it, it, the very next day, actually, or day or two days later, I was having an interview at Paul Stewart Racing. And one of my motives there was A, to still keep me on track, get in a Formula One. But I went there because they were relocating they used to be in Agham in Surrey and they were really relocating to Milton Keynes and my father used to live in Derby so I, it allowed me to actually go back home and try and help my father and, and be there with him because my rest of the siblings my brothers and sisters had moved away and they were they had their own life so I went to Portugal Racing partly to try and help my father but equally work with uh, you know we in the Formula 3 team there we had Bruce uh, sorry Paul Stewart and uh, Derek Higgins 
So I was running Derek's team, Derek's car, sorry. But we had a 3,000 team. We had a Vauxhall Lotus team. So there was McNish and Coulthard in the Vauxhall Lotus and I think Marco Apicello and Jeff Jones, I think, the Labatt's car in 3,000. So working with Jackie was, you know, amazing and, you know, and Paul and you, you, you're just being exposed to, you know, those really serious players, Dave Stubbs, you know, Jackie Stewart. They, they just, the way, the professionalism was just incredible. You know, we we had these, you know, boss clothing and all the best cars and all the best equipment and the really good people, good engineers, good mechanics. And it just, it was the, you know, you knew it was the right way of doing, going racing. You know, we had a terrible year. We had the Reynard, which was ultimately wasn't very competitive. And then we swapped cars to the Rolt in the middle of the season. It was it was painful. It was hard work. But all the best things in life are hard work. You know, it shouldn't be easy. You know, but yeah, mm. that was good. Mm. In, am I right in remembering or my little bit of research here? So the, as you said before, it's about lily pads. It's about jumping to the next one, finding where the next one is, identifying the right one and not the wrong one, whether you're a driver or you're a team manager or a mechanic or whatever it is you want to do. But there was a guy at Paul Stewart Racing called Bruce Jenkins, mm. who was ex McLaren. So that is that was the bridge that got you to McLaren. That, that was probably the biggest link. Yeah, Bruce was my engineer on Derek's car, um, so I knew he had a, an inside link to to Indy and, and Dave Ryan at McLaren. And, and Bruce, yeah, Bruce helped put me up for an interview at the start of the following year when they were they, when they were looking and. Uh, so yeah, you, you're hundred percent right. It's you. You have to make a few moves and a few choices to get yourself to the right place. But equally, you know, you can't carry on like that forever. And I knew for me, once I got there, then you weren't looking that at looking there as a short term thing. But it was, you know, you do what you need to do to get there, and then you know, then clearly you need to change your tact and invest some time into into your future and some uh, commitment to the team and you know being there for the long haul and that's ultimately what you needed to do at McLaren anyway because they're such a structured business um the turnover of people is very low anyway so it takes you a while to work your way through their system um and I was fully committed to that you know I did sort of nine years there and it, yeah, it was just it was everything I expected it to be everything I wanted it to be and um it's an incredible place you know you you still live by some of the traits and the things you'd learned and morals you'd learned and ethics that you that you you adopted you still learn by some of those standards today you know and, and they guide you for me they sort of guide me through my life as as a few other key individuals that you meet and work with along the way but for sure Ron and that team was you know it was in, instrumental in my career to be honest was he a scary operator as a young bloke rolling in you got your formula one dream Ron Dennis running the, you know, at the time, McLaren, top of the game, centre. I guess we're talking Gerhard Berger era when he was there as well. Yeah. Uh, and Ron, so well known for doing everything to the top tier. Everything was schmicko. Everything was done the right way. Everything was done his way. Was it an imposing place to walk into or was it welcoming? A million percent. It was so imposing. But it has to be. It's got to be. You know, the guy, everyone respected him and he respected his workforce, but... He worked you so hard, but the standards, the professionalism, the dedication, the, the ability to, you know, politic, you know, in his level of the of the team, obviously not my level, but yeah, the, the standards that were set were just absolutely incredible. They're top draw and that's how you need to be. And, you know, when they were recruiting, they didn't want 
to, they didn't very rarely did they take from other F1 teams. You know, their mechanics, they wanted to come out of Formula Three because in their eyes, they wanted to tell you how to do it. You know, this is this is the rule book. This is how we want the car put together. We don't, I don't, they don't want people who are going to come in and tell them, oh, well, I think you should do it like this. Or I think, no, no, this is how it's done. This is how you put this car together. You know, and there's the very, you know, there's the Adrian Newis and people like that. Neil Oakley's, those guys were the ones who were saying, okay, this is this how I want my car built. And you learn how to do it their way. And it was more often than not, 99.99% of the time, it was the right way. So, and that's where you learn about procedures and, and doing it the right way and not taking shortcuts. So, yes, he was imposing, but, you know, equally, he was a very, very good boss. You know, you, you would work you hard, and, and when you're at the track, you were full on. You know, it was – intimidation was there, and everyone was always big, spam, clean, well-presented. The car was beautiful. It was put together the right way. But then if you ever needed anything – I mean, I had one instance when I think we were in Brazil, um, and I had a family – matter go go sort of wrong at home and straight away he said adrian you need the jet oh he's there go home go home and sort your issue don't worry about this i mean i didn't i you know it, it sort of it worked itself out at home so i didn't need to get on a plane but that's the level wow. of humanity that he showed his staff and support that he showed you and you knew if you were ever in the shit you needed something he was there for you and and that's where the, I think the good bosses in motorsport, they work you hard and they are intimidating, but equally they've got that that soft side and that ability to look and they look after their staff when when it's needed and when it's required. And, you know, we always had you know, fantastic Christmas parties. We'd hire out Kensington Palace and all these huge places, you know, you know, the Spice Girls came and played, the, you know, they were the band <laughs> when they were hip and trendy you know, in the early 90s. But you just had fabulous Christmas parties. And you, you, when you work your ass off all year, when you get to the end of the year and it's time for those guys to say thank you to the workforce, it just went a million. It, they did it. They looked after you, you know. Your partners were invited and it, 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 puts, it makes up for, for the late nights and the hard work and the graft. And it's a, there's a mutual respect in both directions from the workers up, you know, upstream and, and vice versa. So he was great. He was an, you know, talking like him, like he's past. He <laughs> he, he's a very inspiring boss, you know. Yeah. And I enjoyed every minute of it. Hey, what was your first role at, at McLaren? Are we talking, what, 1991 here? Yeah, 91. So I, I came in as a number two on the test team. Um, and which at the time the test team was like its own separate race team <laughs> well, virtually there was that we much were, stuff going on we were actually bigger than our race team we really we, the, we, we were huge we had the ability to run four cars test cars not race cars we, we and we did it on countless times we had the ability to run four test cars in two different locations around the world on the same day and we used to do it oh. i mean often you know oh. you'd go to japan for for three weeks at a time yeah. You'd did two to, cars live there? Didn't two yeah, cars live there permanently right, that, at Suzuka? That's how we did it. You know, we had two cars in uh, Waco as their R&D facility and we'd get on the bullet train and you'd go down to Suzuka and you'd run. One car was the always the engine car. So that's where they did all their engine development and the other car was sort of our car. And we had, you know, all the active work, all the FCZ gearbox, the single shift gearbox, all those things were sort of developed, you know, a long way out from before you ever raced them you know, the semi-automatic gearbox, all these things. So we'd be running this stuff in Japan and we'd have, you know, McNish, Jonathan Palmer, Iwan Welly Piro, 
um, some you know, legends in their own yeah. right doing what's called the donkey work. And then you had Ayrton and Gerhard uh, running in Europe. Um, and this is still all test team. There wasn't the race team mechanics needed to do all this stuff. It, our test team was bigger than the race team in those days. But it, for me, it was great. You know, I'd go to Italy, do a test at Imola for three, four days, and then you'd come back home. A day later, you'd get on a plane and you go to Japan um, for two or three weeks. Then I was a single, single guy, 21, 22 years old. I thought I'd gone to heaven. You know, it was just, it was just <laughs> awesome. It was just mega. And how did you get the step? Obviously, there was clearly a, a pathway. There was places to go within the organisation to to step it up. So you get on the test team, you're in the door, great. But then how do you get on the race team? Yeah, well, during that period, um, the test team, were, you know, a few times we ran extra cars um, with the race team, like in Brazil, I think in 92, we actually took six cars to the race, we, we had the MP47, which was the new car. Uh, and in the first couple of races, we'd had a few problems with it. There was, it was a new engine. We had the V12 then, I think, and the MP46 had the V10 in it. So they had a few issues pre-season with it. So Ron said, okay, well, we'll take three of each. So we ended up going to Brazil with six cars. So, you know, so yeah, there was probably six or seven or eight of us from the test team that needed to go and support that. So you've got the ability to go to the races, you know, we did Monaco, we did um, Donington, we did a, a, a quite a few of the races we needed to be there. To They needed more people. So you had that chance to show Davey Ryan and, and the rest of the senior guys there that, you, you know, you, you, you could do your job. So you're always sort of auditioning. There was a few of the guys on the, on the race team that have been there a long time. Um, and then, so we got to the end of 93 and a couple of those, and Atom was, he was probably the one of the big reasons. So Atom obviously left to go to Williams and a few of his crew, so Gary Walker and, and Crabbers and a few of those guys said, okay, I mean, we're coming to an end, end of an era here with Ayrton and a few people left the race team that year. Um, and, you know, I was obviously, I've done enough to, for those guys to put some faith in me to go racing. And then said so 94, got, a, got myself on the race team. And same thing again, they put you on the T-car. So I think I did a year on the T-car. It was my first year on the spare car. And then they put me on Mika's car. I'd had a bit of a – I'd sort of come up through the ranks a little bit with Mika. You know, we raced against Mika in Formula 3 um, for a few years. So we knew each other fairly well. Whether that helped me um, end up being put on his car, on his race car or not, I don't know. But I ended up on Mika's car, and, and that was that was great. He's one of my uh, – I loved him. He was one of my heroes. He's such a cool cat. You know, he's so, uh, yeah, his dedication was incredible, but it just, yeah, he's the finisher funny. They're good fun to work with, but uh, his talent was incredible. He is uh, such a talented driver. So I, I really enjoyed that part. I wanted to touch on Mika shortly because you were with him when he got to the, to the world championship, but once upon a time you told me a great story and I'd love if you can retell it for our, our listeners about the day that, you guys at McLaren went to Pembry, which is a track in Wales, which is used for open wheel, uh, lots of testing and stuff like that. It's never obviously hosted Formula One. And you tried to play a prank on Ant and Senna, didn't you? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we were down there. I think we might have been there with the Lamborghini car. Remember the white? I was, uh, was going to ask you about that as yeah. well. We were there with the Lamborghini car and, and, and the Ford. 
Um, and it, it's, you know, we're all, you know, we drive down the M4 in the iCars for a couple of hours and we get there and everyone's, and we knew Ayrton was coming and it's like, oh, where is he? And all of a sudden this private jet flies in. There's a little airstrip there. So he lands in his jet. Someone goes over to get him, comes over, he's chilled, he's chatting away. <clears throat> and then we stick him in the car um, to go out and do an insulation lap. And Pembury's a very small circuit. I think at the time, I don't even think there was um, a garage structure. You know, there wasn't like a pit lane that we know it in 20, 30 garages. There was just a scrutineering shed, which you could get two cars in and in your equipment. So we used to operate out of there. And um, anyway, we sent him out. So you, you drove out of there onto the track, but we didn't tell him which way to go because you, you basically drove just through a gate. It wasn't like a pit exit that we acknowledge and remember. So it wasn't obvious. So we sent him out through this gate and he got onto the track and he turned left. And um, he did two or three laps. We didn't say anything. So I think, I think we told him to go left. That was it. We told him to go left. So he does two or three laps and then comes in back into this big sort of apron and then just does a donut, turns it around and goes, oh, you funny fuckers, and just gets back on the circuit and then does three laps the right way. But uh, he, he was when you had him in um, – environments like that and away from the media and away from the big events he was a really fun bloke he was he, yeah he was great and I'm so lucky to have been able to have the, that time with him and understand that side of him and not the public side where he's always you know he was very not shy but he didn't want to engage the media and, and the world like that because he was just such a big player I can understand it, and he wanted to keep his life private. But when you got him in a place like Pembury, you'd sit there and we'd you'd chat away, and he was a really, really cool, really great guy. And you know what happened the following year in Emily was just yeah, it was just absolutely tragic. And yeah, you know, I still remember it like it was yesterday. Unfortunately, yeah, it's that I remember where I was moment of of world yeah. motor racing. Obviously, Australia's got its with with Peter Brock, I guess you'd say, and that's yeah. the, that's the world one for sure. Uh, you mentioned that Lamborghini engine. Remember that for our listeners who might not remember, Honda and McLaren finished their long time relationship for '93. Um, I, I think Senna was hanging out, wasn't he, for a, a deal, and he ended up yeah. doing a race by race. It was like a million bucks yeah. a race, or it was a million something. Bucks. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, along those lines. Pounds, pounds, even better. Yeah, in the uh, Michael and- it's cool. Yeah, My- Michael Andretti came from America and drove the other car, but he was replaced before the end of the year by Mika. But the engine side of things ended up with Ford customer engines, which really made, you know, they weren't the thing to have, but still Ayrton won a bunch of races that year, including Adelaide, to round out the year. But the, the car that you mentioned that he drove at Pembury was a, it was a Chrysler slash Lamborghini engine car am i right in remembering that so it was being tested with a view to what was going to happen for engines for 94 but there was a really real chance that mclaren could have raced that car before the end of 93 yeah and i was you know so i was on the test team then and as you say we were had the ford um dfv but we had the wire spring engine we had basically a customer engine we were paying for our engines and benetton had the air valve, which was the latest spec engine, and they were the factory team. And I think they won one race with Michael, and we won five with Ayrton. And um, we, myself, Johnny O and Rich Moody, we were the three guys. We're the only three guys, mechanics, to actually work on that car. So all of the the Lambo testing was always our car crew. Um, and, we, yeah, we went to Pembury, then we went to Silverstone, then we took it to Estoril. Um, and I remember going to Estoril in, in Portugal, and we were there a day after the Grand Prix. And 
Ayrton loved it. He thought it was great. And, and coupled with that chassis, our chassis at the time, we were just catching up with Williams with the active. We would, we'd made some really good strides. The car was quick. Um, we turned up at Estoril, and I think Ron said to, to the team, if you guys can be uh, five seconds quicker than where we were at that weekend. So, yeah, that was Mick's first race weekend. Um, he said, if you're five seconds quicker than where we were with our current race car, then we'll consider it. <clears throat> and then we go back out, we go out, do a quality run, and we're like 4.9 seconds quicker than, sorry, than the LaRousse. The LaRousse Formula One team was running that engine at the time. And within half a day, we were 4.9 seconds quicker than the LaRousse was two days earlier at the Grand Prix um, with the same engine. Um, but the problem with the engine is, you know, by the time it was warm, it normally had hand grenaded itself. I think the furthest we ever went was like about 19 laps before all of a sudden you could look down through the inlet trumpets and actually see out the bottom, you know, it hand grenaded itself in the most magnificent ways. You know, there were like scale electric cars dragging Conrad's down the front <laughs> straight of Barcelona at uh, Estoril. It, the thing just blew up. And in the end we couldn't, and, and it's Ayrton wanted it. And I think if we'd taken the engine, then he may have stayed with us. Um, he knew engine was our weakness and we needed a good engine partner. And he, he wanted to right, he wanted to take that car to Japan and Adelaide, which ended up being the last two races of his career with McLaren. And ironically, he won both those races mm. um, for us with a, with a Ford. But uh, at the end of the day, it came down to Chrysler putting in the money to develop the engine and make it reliable and, and yada, yada, yada. And we, Ron couldn't get a deal over the line with those guys. And then in the end, we ended up uh, going with Peugeot. And, and that was probably one of the factors where Ayrton said, okay, I, I need to go and get into Williams. Mm. And, and yeah, so we lost the chance to keep him, which, yeah, when you look back on it, it's a shame. But that's, you know, that's racing. He, the, yeah. That's why Ayrton was so good. He got himself in the right car and he knew that our, you know, we'd lost our Honda deal and, well, that come to a natural end and, yeah, he needed to win races and, yeah, he felt he could in the Williams and, and that's why he went there. Yeah, uh, totally understandable. I think that car, which was a plain white McLaren, it didn't have the Marlboro livery and, and, yeah. and that stuff on it. I think that still exists. I think it was on display in the last couple of years, maybe in Italy at a, a Lamborghini um, display or a, a museum Um a quick check online will probably yeah. find where it's been, but it's still around. You're, the car that you would have fettled and worked on in yeah. the end of 93s is still around somewhere. And it's pretty rare, actually, that McLarens of that era are outside of McLaren hands because back in those days, Rodden didn't sell too many or let oh. too many get out the door. No, it's obviously changed now. But, um, yeah, I mean, we used to have this place called North Road, which is just around the corner from our factory. And it was a huge building, you know, a big, big building. And you go in there and there was everything. There was every Formula One car and everything that we'd McLaren had done for like the past 20 years. There was all of the tag Porsche turbo engine program. You know, there was there was shelving just full of turbos or a shelf full of Garrett turbos and then KKK turbos and, and then just boxes, like 40 engine boxes, which all had the V6 <laughs> turbo engines in. The amount of hardware that was in there was unbelievable. It was, and Ron wouldn't let anything go. He was, yeah, he was one of those guys. But um, yeah, it was, it was crazy. That car was so, you know, I've got so many good memories about that car. I remember we were so good at doing engine changes on the thing because that was so unreliable. We actually did one from rolling the rolling it into the garage to driving it back out the garage, 
26 minutes was our best. Which engine's this? The Lamborghini. Oh, the Lambo. Yeah, yeah. 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 You got good it at it then. It was such a big engine. Everything was spread out. You know, it was it was actually fairly quick and easy to change. But, yeah, unfortunately, you just changed them quite a lot because it was so unreliable. <laughs> Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. What was your, I mean, an amazing era for McLaren in the 90s, of course, Senna and Berger at the start, um, of course, Hackenden emerges, Coulthard joins from Williams along the way, and then they become the the guys that were there when it went, well, we went from the red and white to the silver and black McLarens, oh. of the, the West cars. Have you got a favourite car from, from that time you were there that's got a real soft spot in your heart? Oh, you've got to say the 13, the MP4 13, which is the one we won the championship with. When we tested it, um, we they, we ran it in the orange livery that you know they've gone gone back to now. So, I mean, that looked great, but yeah, it's hard to go back past Ayrton's car, the MP45B and MP46. They were they're just great cars. They they looked good. They had a great engine in them. The Marlboro livery is obviously iconic as well, so it was it was nice, and you always felt proud pulling on the uniform in the morning and, and you know, going to work. It was, yeah, the Marlboro days were good. As much as I'm, I'm a fan of Mika and I love my time working with him and the, you know, the West, cars but yeah i've got to say the marlboro cars they're iconic speaking of mika were you working on his car when he had that big crash in in adelaide in 95 yeah unfortunately i was well um yes yeah, so i was the front end mechanic um in in those days as a number two so i was responsible for everything forward of the roll hoop so all of the cockpit all of the front suspension and all that stuff so yeah so that was a as a traumatic weekend i think for everybody involved um so he had his accident and we got the car back and um and we were all you know we were worried about him we you know he was in a critical condition at that point we didn't know you know what was going to happen and davy ryan yeah we were sat in the corner otis rich and myself who worked on that car and we were really you know upset and dejected and stuff and then davy's like guys sorry i need you to rebuild it we're going to do a chassis change so we worked until like two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning. We put a new chassis in there, obviously just replaced everything. And, you know, I'm in there having to mop all the blood out of it because, you know, they had to do a tracheotomy in him and the wishbone had come through the side of the monocoque and, and clipped his leg on the way through. So, that, you know, I had to clean all that crap up. And, and then you had to just keep yourself motivated, do the job. You know, you're building a car, you're going to put someone in it the next day and anything can happen. And, one of the things you take out of those situations is it just shows you how much you have to pay attention. You've got to do your job because what you, you're sending a guy out in this thing. It's a rocket on wheels. And if you leave something loose, something breaks, you, there's dire consequences. And it, it's it, those moments, you know, Ayrton's moments, that whole weekend in Imola, you know, Mika, those things, they keep you focused and they're always a constant reminder how dangerous this thing is. And it's not, you're not doing it for fun. It's a career. It's a business. It's someone's life. Yes, it's a sport, but it's, it's a serious game. And those 
I always use those weekends to really give myself a kick up the arse. You never become complacent, but it's important to remember it. So we we did a chassis change that night, built the car, and we were all flat as anything. We weren't interested. And then we came back in for Sunday. And um, I think uh, we had Billy, Billy, Billy Blundell, Marky Blundell was in the second car. And he took our car in the warm-up just to do an installation check on it and make sure it was all good. And then from memory, he, he liked it. He, he like he liked, preferred it over his car. And then we had to do the race with our car. And to be honest, it's quite stressful. It is quite stressful for exactly the reasons I just mentioned. And I can't remember where we ended up in the race because I think we're all zombies and we're all just thinking about Mika and wanted to, to know that he was okay. And luckily, you know, he, he was, and we all know what his, history, you know, what happened. But then another nice part of that, that is when he decided he was coming back at the start of 86, um, his first test back was Ricard. And Ron came down and, and said, right, I want his race crew, I want all the people that he was there with in Adelaide, go and do the test, because normally the test team would cover it. So, yeah, we got to Rickard, and this is the first time we'd seen Micker, and he'd, he'd you know, gone through a fair bit. He'd, he'd stayed here in Australia for quite a while recuperating. And then we, you know, we got there to... Got there to Rickard and Mika came in and it's our guys. It was us. It was his team. It was really quite an emotional experience and we're all nervous and Ron's nervous. You know, is he going to be the same? You know, what's happened? You know, how's he dealt with it himself? And he went out and within three laps, he was as quick as we'd ever been around there. And everyone just breathed a huge sigh of relief that uh, we got the Mika back that we loved. Um, but he changed. He was, he withdrew very much, and he, it was hard to get much out of him. He, he, he wasn't as talkative as he was before. He was sort of fine with us, but you could tell he was a different person. And, it, it, yeah, it was quite weird um, going through that process with him, but I think for us guys on his car, it sort of just bonded that relationship that you already had with him. Um, and, yeah, for me, he's, he's one of the most uh, enjoyable people that I've had the privilege of working with. You talked about how the fins are, the fins are a bit different. They're a bit unique. They're fun. <laughs> what, what you, what you, obviously winning the world championship when he won at Suzuka, wasn't it? Ninety eight yeah. when he clinched it. When it was a, it was a great, great era with McLaren v Ferrari, um, Mika versus Michael. It was, it was a, a ripping couple of years. It wasn't just one year where that all, all went on. Is that the highlight when you do win a world championship? Not just with the team, but it's your guy in in the car that you're working on. Having come from where he's come from three years before, it was a amazing comeback. Is that the number one F one moment for you? Well, it probably is, you know. And but equally, you know, there's so many moments, you know. But you're right when it's your car and and you're having a fight, you're having a battle. I think all the best championships or even races for that matter that you win, but when you've had a good odd slag, you know, good odd punch on with someone, winning races without any competition is boring. Yeah, you know, yeah. I think all our drivers will agree. They enjoy the battles, you know, and that whole year was a good battle. Michael was just coming into his stride. You know, he was, you knew he was going to be the next thing. You know, we'd lost there and then everyone had sort of got over that. And this was the start of a new, really good, intense rivalry between two incredible drivers. Um, so when you beat people like Michael, you know you you deserve it. And um, that was one of those championships. Adrian... Knew he had, had turned up two years earlier, and he was the probably the transformation for the team. And you know, when Adrian turned up, oh my word! You know, as a mechanic, the car became ten times harder to work on. 
you know, he's just a perfectionist and, you know, it's all about performance for him. And you could see this mentality shift and this change within the, the business about how we designed and built our race cars, which was amazing to see and be part of as well. But you knew you had a chance, you know, and going to any event when you know you've got a chance of winning is is great. It's hard when you're, you're working as hard as the guys at the front, but you go there and you know you don't have a chance. So, um, the, you know, being on the grid with Ayrton, being on Ayrton's car on the grid in Brazil, it's another sort of emotional highlight. You, you forget what happens in the races, but just being there in front of the Brazilian fans and it's 35 degrees and they're throwing bottles of water at you to cool you down and they're <laughs> hurling abuse at the rest of the grid. You know, just things like that were just amazing um, amazing feelings and, and memories that you take with you. It's an amazing era that you were, you were a part of. I'll cover off why and where and how that uh, that McLaren era ended. Got a little segment on the pod, Burjo. It's called What's in Your Cupboard? It's thanks to our friends at the motorsporttrader.com who are keeping motorsport memories alive. They sell all sorts of memorabilia, panels, wheels, bits and pieces. I'm not sure that you've got any um, huge engine parts or bonnets or anything like these guys deal in, but have you got anything special in the cupboard that you've kept from your, might be from your supercar time with Triple Eight or DJR or your F1 McLaren era or Carlin, or have you, have you kept anything special from over the journey? Yeah, there's a couple of little bits. I mean, I've, yeah. Uh, I've got a champagne bottle from Mika when we won our ice, I can't remember where, I think I'm in Spa somewhere, and I've got all my Formula One passes. They all have your picture on. And I managed to get everyone signed by the world champion of each of each year. And that's nice. something I've actually carried on to current day. You know, I've got all my supercar passes and all the years in between. That's a little one I've got. I've got a few helmets. I'm lucky enough. Um, a few of the drivers over the years have given me helmets. I've actually got Mika's glove. So that race in Suzuka in 98 when we won the world championship. Um, he actually threw his gloves off the podium and I managed to catch one. Oh, I've got cool. that. I've got some uh, beautiful pictures of Ayrton, you know, signed by Ayrton. And, and uh, yeah, there's a couple of little car parts which probably need to remain uh, <laughs> off, <laughs> off record. You know, I do actually have Mika's seatbelt buckle from that accident in Adelaide in 95. And oh, wow. Got a few visors signed by Mika and DC. And yeah, there's, there's bits, you know, the team kit clothing um yeah memories i think are the other yeah are the, probably the cool part you know but yeah there's bits and bobs you know i try not to litter my house with motor racing i think just working through it your whole life is is one thing and you know coming home and feeling like you're still at work is probably not you know, yeah. what i want to do i need <laughs> to have something outside of racing but yeah i'm lucky enough to have a few cool little bits now, that's very cool. We love our memorabilia here at V8 Sleuth. We're big fans of all the old stuff and what gets kept along the way. So, World Championship win um, times two, because Mika goes back to back. Do you get to a point where you kind of go, right, I've kind of done what I wanted to do here. What's the next challenge? Or how did you end up departing McLaren? Yeah, look, I'm, I've always been someone who's wanted to progress myself as a person and in my career. And um, you quickly... McLaren's a great place, don't get me wrong. And I, it's the sort of place when I've people are, are, I was there with then are still there now, you know, 25 years later or whatever it is. The people have been there 30, 40 years, and you could do that easily in that organization, but it's very slow to work your way through. And I'd work myself up to being a number one on the race team. And the next logical step for me 
is crew chief and then team manager. And it's funny, actually, when Dave Ryan interviewed me in 1991 and he said, what's your aspirations? What do you want to do? I actually turned around to him and said, I want your job. And, um, <laughs> and, and he laughed about it. And he laughed about it and he reminded me every now and again. But you know, I, I wanted to, I didn't want to be a mechanic all my life. You know, I needed to step up. I needed to um, progress. So they, they told me I was going to be the next um, chief mechanic. Um, but at the time, a guy called Mike Negline, who, who's a top bloke, he works for the FIA now, he had gone into that role probably two years earlier. And um, I just knew that I would be waiting five or six or seven years just to go the next step to chief mechanic, let alone team manager. Um, and that bore out in the end. It, it would have been a long time before I'd been able to move up one step. And so I sort of said to myself, okay, um, I need to probably step out in in still in motor racing but to take one i need to, to go forwards i need to come backwards a step so um throughout that last year myself and a very good mate of mine boyo um who owns and runs and robertson racing so again another big successful formula three team we we hatched a bit of a plan to set up our own formula three team funnily enough and um at the time we'd got jensen budden and Narang car decaying ready to go and so I went to Ron and Norbert Haug from Mercedes, and this is before all these big influx of works teams or junior teams came, but I went to Ron with the idea. I said, look, we will be your breeding ground. We'll be your, your Formula 3 team. You know, We don't need to run your name, but can you help us with a bit of budget and we'll give you all the drivers, we'll nurture some drivers and, and really become that junior team for them. And, um, and Ron thought about it for a while, sort of, I'm denied. And it got to the point where we got to end of the season. We'd won the championship. And he said, no, it's just not for us. And so, okay, no problem. Well, I'm, I'm going to leave because equally at the same time I've met, you know, my future wife and we'd sort of said, okay, we're going to get married end of the year. And we wanted to start a family and things like this. So I, I needed to have a change. You know, you're, you're traveling away a lot. It's, um, it was a sort of single man's job. Well, you know, I was getting to that, you know, 30 years old or whatever it is, and I thought I can't be a single bloke forever. So we wanted to settle down. So that coincided with me leaving McLaren. Ironically, though, probably about two weeks after uh, the end of the year, when I sort of was just in the process of leaving, the former Ford Festival was on at Brands Hatch, which you'll be aware of, and Jensen wins it. <clears throat> and then um, Jensen wins the festival, and the next morning, Norbert Haug from Mercedes rings me and says, oh, Adrian, what, what's happened with Jensen? You, you know, I see he had a good result. I said, yeah, yeah, he did, actually. We told you he was going to be good. <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately, he signed with Promotechni two weeks ago. So we've just lost our chance of securing him. So, you know, it's one of those sort of moments where, you know, if things are just panned out slightly differently, you know, just by a matter of days or weeks, you know, it, it could all have been different, but. Mm. So, so we just missed an opportunity there to set our own team up. So Boyo and myself, this was when Trevor was just restarting or Carlin Racing was just... Tre Trevor Carlin, Trevor that Carlin is. And, and, just, and for those who don't know, Boyo's real name is... Anthony Hyatt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so for those who don't know, that's who we're talking about. Yeah, yeah he's a little legend as well. Um, and we've been friends. Yeah, we both started in 85. We've been, and we're still very good friends now. But anyway, so we both missed that chance to set our own thing up. And that was um, for 99, wasn't it? No, no. Because Button was in F1 in 2000 with Williams. 
Yeah, it was for 99. So it would have been 99. Yeah. So you so left at the end of the 98 World Championship nine, season. Yeah, after, yeah, just after we yep. won that. Yeah, so we left then. Yep, right. So we missed that chance. And then, so we're both sort of on the market. Trev knew what was going on. We were good friends with Trevor. So in the end, the pair of us went to work for Trevor. Um, and that's really when his team really sort of set up. Before that, he was just doing a little bit of pit stop challenge work. And I think he had a Class B car. I can't remember who for now. But... um so we went into Carlin and really became the start of Carlin. That's a boy and myself with the two race engineers. So that's when I moved from being a mechanic to race engineering. Um, Boyo had Takuma Sato, I think, in the first year. I had, oh, no, he didn't. No, he had Narain. He had Narain Kartikeyan. I had Michael Bentwood. And then I had Ben Collins the following year. Who our um, listeners would know better as the Stig, who ben did a bit a of supercar racing in with the Kellys. Yeah, so Ben, yeah, Ben's a good guy. I've known him a long time, and it, so I'm just finding my feet, race engineering then, and then and then we had a really great purple patch. Uh, Takuma joined us, um, and it was, so we had Takuma and Ben. That was it. So we won a race with Ben, and then Takuma stayed for his second year, and Anthony Davidson joined us. So I started engineering Anthony Davidson. Uh, who you probably most people know from the Formula One broadcast. And we were one, two. I think we won like 30 odd races that year. We dominated. We were one, two in the British Championship. We were one, two in the European Championship. We won Macau. We, we, we were winning everything. We won Poe with Anthony. Um, we were smashing it. And then, so I'd finished runner up behind Boyo. Um, and then James came. And I don't know that Trevor felt sorry for me being the bridesmaid for a couple of years. They gave me James to engineer, so then we went into 2002 engineering JC, and yeah, when we were smashing it, we were we were leading the championship by a fair way. And then he had his Formula One testing accident with Jaguar in Monza, and then that turned that year on its head, and we ended up losing the championship at the last event because he was. Uh, Still a little bit, little bit concussed, and when he came back from his accident, he certainly wasn't the same person that he was before his accident. I mean, some might say he feels like that he's still concussed now. But uh, <laughs> oh, know, come on now, that's a bit. That rough. Was a cheap he's not, shot, he's not here to defend him. himself. He's not here to defend himself. <laughs> so yeah, that's that was my sort of transition from F one into engineering, and and then ultimately that led into team management. And Carlin became that. I, I remember um, a trip to the UK in '02. That's where I met you in a pub in Buckinghamshire. <laughs> it was yeah. with uh, a certain young Mister Courtney and his housemate at the time, Will Davison, who uh, these days are still yeah. racing one another. Nearly twenty years on, um, Carlin was the. It was the best team, the biggest team, the team you wanted to go to, the team you wanted to raise the budget for. It was the one that everyone wanted to go at the time. British Formula Three was. You know, you could go back, look at the list of people it generated in the 90s, but the early noughties, some of the guys you've you've mentioned there. And then the Aussie at, attack, there was Courtney. The two Wills, Davison and Power, landed yeah. over there. I think Bart Moore had a crack there for a while. Marcus Marshall yeah. popped up. Um, it was the real place you had to be below Formula 3000 to to get spotted. British F3 was the ants' pants. Oh, it was huge. And, you know... Most of the Formula uh, the Formula One drivers had come through British Formula Three at that you know in those yeah Mikasala Hakkinen Ayrton you know Gugelman just a, a whole host of them and and we were pumping out you know Alan van der Merwe won the championship with us he's now the medical yeah. car driver with Formula yeah. One and and Jamie 
um, Jamie Green, Green who's yeah. gone on to have a very successful career in DTM. The, you know, Pazonia, all these guys were, there was just a, a great list of, it was such a competitive series. It was really good fun to, to work in. And, and Carlin, they were just such a great team, very professional. Trevor was a great boss as well. You'd work hard during the day, but then you'd go and have a beer and a curry at night. You know, we were really, it was that sort of team. It was, the atmosphere was good. Some really great mechanics and engineers and, and people have been through there and, and they're huge now. And, you know, they're, they're racing in sort of five or six categories in Europe. And, and now even in IndyCar, they've been running in IndyCar with uh, Max for a few years. So they really are the closest team or the, the team on the edge of going to Formula One. And, and that is how I sort of ended up back in Formula One again in 05. So, um, yeah, it's, there are a bunch of legends. Oh, Timmy Miles, a lot of people in Australia will know Timmy. So he, he was around in those days, uh, actually earlier, sorry, when we were at Bowman. But there's a lot of people down here in Australia and New Zealand that have all been through that. You know, Bairdo was over there with us and Crookshank and Andy McElroy and all those guys. That uh, There's a whole heap of them. It's, it's funny. But, um, good times. So that's part one of my chat with Adrian Burgess. I hope you've enjoyed it. There's some great corker stories there, weren't there, from the Formula One days with Senna and Hackenden. Really, really cool. Next week, part two, we chat about ending up back in Formula One, about how he moved to Australia to work in V8 supercars, that dramatic championship win with Dick Johnson Racing and James Courtney in 2010, and we talk also about his time with Triple Eight and the Holden Racing Team. Adrian tackles your National Motor Racing Museum couch racer questions and tackles the V8 Sleuth Top 10 Shootout. Don't forget, our online bookshop's the place to go, bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au. There's a bunch of ideas for Father's Day and Christmas, pre-order books, books that are available now. There's some great reading there for motorsport fans of all ages. Don't forget, subscribe to our newsletter via the v8sleuth.com.au website. Follow us on the socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're on all of those places. Keep in touch with us. Keep your suggestions coming for who you'd like to hear on the pod or if you've got some general feedback, give it to us. Review, rate and subscribe to the podcast. We really appreciate your support. Anyway, that's us done for the V8 Salute Podcast powered by Repco. Listen to Repco Supercars Weekly every Tuesday, part two of Adrian Burgess next week. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out.